take the sweatshirt off. Put the sweatshirt on. <laughs> when I got here three months ago last week, it was summer. <laughs> Fall. All right. Good evening, everybody. Thanks for coming. Welcome to Insight Santa Cruz. Uh, is there anybody uh, who's never been here before? Yeah? Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, hey, I'm Matt. Um, I'm from the East Bay, Oakland, Sangha. All right, well, welcome. Anybody else? First time? <coughs> right. Well, I want to thank Insight Santa Cruz once again for inviting me uh, back to teach here. It's always a pleasure and an honor to get invited to Insight Centers, because that is my tradition, Insight Meditation. Uh, I've been here several times before, and I want to particularly thank my friend Kara here for uh, letting me cover her time slot so she gets the night off. Mm -hmm. uh, for those of you who go to her Fierce Hearts class, which meets here on Sundays at 6, right? Mm -hmm. All right, and some of you are here. That's even better. Uh, my name is Dave Smith, and um, happy to be back. Um, some of you I know very well, and some of you I don't. I just met, so I don't know how much you know. So I do feel some degree of responsibility, uh, just letting people uh, know a little bit about my background and, and, and what brings me here. Um, so I am a longtime insight practitioner uh, from Massachusetts, where I was introduced to the practice. At the Insight Meditation Society, I'm sure many of you are familiar, uh, developed by Jack, Jack and Joseph and Sharon and the first wave of these Insight teachers. And I sat there uh, many years through my uh, late teens and 20s. Um, in recent incarnation, I, I was a big part of Against the Stream, which is no longer with us, um, and uh, taught with that uh, community for a very long time. And now I'm all, my, all on my own. Uh, and so I, I teach uh, uh, a couple of things. I do teach insight retreats, Vipassana retreats, and classes like this around the country. <laughs> I also teach a lot of um, classes and programmings in the secular realm. Uh, so I've been teaching secular mindfulness, and mostly in mental health and substance abuse, addiction treatment, uh, prisons and jails. Uh, and I just got done today. I, I've been teaching all week. Uh, teaching at the Vajrapani Institute. Some of you might be familiar with Vajrapani Institute up here in Boulder Creek, I believe. Uh, teaching a program that I'm going to talk about tonight a little bit. That I'm, I'm really currently in my practice and my work. This thing that I'm most excited about is called Cultivating Emotional Balance. And Cultivating Emotional Balance is a program that was developed. Uh, it really started in the year 2000, and it was it was inspired by the by the Dalai Lama who really wanted to bring together the contemplative traditions of Buddhist practice and integrate it into the science uh, of psychology and emotion and the science of emotion to develop really a secular program to help people with their emotions regardless of, of their religious background or views. Um, so this, is this, this idea of having an emotional intelligence, which is an idea that's not new. Um, but using... A Dharma practice using uh, mindfulness and, and the heart practices as really a vehicle and a tool 
to begin to navigate the often messy territory of emotion. Uh, the emotions that we have, uh, and working with the emotions that we have with, the, with other people in our lives, and trying to develop what we call constructive emotions. Uh, having constructive emotional outcomes in our lives and our relationships, that, that further cooperation and that further the happiness of ourselves and others, rather than destructive emotions, which seem to be a big problem for the humans. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about that this evening. I'm very interested in this marriage of science and dharma. Um, I think that it's a big, big component of, of what we could loosely call American Buddhism. Um, it, it's really uh, one thing I love about about Dharma practice is, is if you trace it back in its history, every time the Dharma goes to a new area, so Dharma went to China and became Chan, Chan Buddhism, and, and Zen in, in Japan, uh, in Theravada in Southeast Asia, in uh, Tibetan Buddhism in, in Tibet. Because every time the Dharma goes to a new area, it affects the culture where it arrives, and also the culture that it arrives in affects it. So there is this kind of uh, relationship between the culture and the practices that changes it ever so slightly. Tibetan Buddhism is a little different than Theravada Buddhism, and, and Zen Buddhism is a little different than both of those. And they're all they're all a little different. And one's not better than the other, or that kind of thing, but they're different. And what makes them different is how the culture shape the practices to fit their understanding and their needs and, and, and what was going on for them at the time. And of course, America being the melting pot that it is, uh, one of the things that has really affected Dharma here is our understanding of science and our understanding of psychology and uh, neuroscience and really sometimes what my friend Eve Ekman calls the Western wisdom traditions, uh, the traditions of of really secular mindfulness and the work of Richard Davidson around neuroscience and neuroplasticity and this understanding that science is starting to understand that the Buddhists were onto something many, many years ago. And so it's not one or the other, but it's really a marriage and an integration of what we understand from, from a science lens around, around the human body, around the somatic nervous system, around the experience of emotions, around psychology, and, and using, uh, Dharma practice or mindfulness or heart practices or wherever you hold that concept as sort of the tool or the, or the, the, uh, the vehicle in which we, we go into these territories. Um, and, I, and I will say on a personal note, the reason why this has been so important to me as, as a Dharma practice has for me been a tremendous uh, vehicle to overcome my own suffering First, just acknowledging that I was suffering, and then working. I continue to work with the suffering concept at the same time on a daily basis, but I'm a slow learner, I suppose. Uh, but really coming to terms with the fact that the, um, the suffering that I experience uh, is mostly of an emotional variety. Uh, I don't have a lot of physical suffering. I, I have all my hedonic needs met, all my, my Aslov hierarchy of needs. I seem to have those going well for me. So physically, I, I feel fine. And even my mind, as much as it, it does torture me sometimes, we're pretty good. We, we get along most of the time. But my emotions, when I become emotional, uh, it doesn't always go so well. Um, 
And so also having a background in, in Dharma, in, in classic Dharma teachings, uh, there's no word in uh, Pali, Sanskrit, Tibetan, Chinese, any of those Buddhist languages, they don't have a word for what we call emotion here in our English dialect. They, don't have, they just don't have a word for it. They use this word maybe chitta uh, sometimes, but nothing that even kind of comes close to what we understand through the scientific exploration and understanding of emotion as an episodic event, as a uh, that our legacy of emotion is a, has been passed down through our uh, evolutionary biology, and that emotions are somaticized. We have universal emotions. All human beings have the same ones. We all have the same facial expressions that we make, the same voice change. So there's a universal human aspect to emotion that the Western uh, wisdom traditions have really, really acknowledged and have very specific tools and programs on how to navigate that. Uh, very clearly laid out where I have found that in my practice and working with teachers and sitting in these long, month-long retreats and these three-month-long retreats, not really feeling like I had much of a... I wasn't getting proper or I wasn't getting instructions that seemed to be uh, particularly helpful with helping me navigate my emotions. You know, I got pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Okay, well, that's not that helpful. <laughs> you know, <laughs> things like that. So I do like to, um, we'll do some practice. Uh, we have a little bit of extra time tonight. That's why I wanted to talk a little bit at first. But I do oftentimes, uh, I was excited when I looked at the um, email because I, we, we, Karen and I had set up this event a while ago and I usually send a title and description, but by the time I get here, I'm like, what was I going to do again? So I'm very grateful that they make a flyer here so I know what to teach you. <laughs> and I'm very excited that I chose this topic for myself. Uh, it, 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 the topic is spiritual bypass and the war on emotions. Um, uh, our emotions can lead us to our greatest joys and most painful sorrows. In their most creative capacity, they are guides pointing us towards who we truly are and what is most meaningful in our lives. At their most destructive, we are caught by them, lost in the grip of anger, sadness, and fear, and we become overwhelmed. This suffering is something that we all have felt, but can we create more space, more choice, and more ease in the face of our emotions? Spiritual bypass refers to those times when we fall into the trap of misusing mindfulness practice or Dharma practice to repress or avoid strong emotional state that we don't want to face. So that's what I'm going to talk about this evening. So I will jump a little bit on my soapbox. I've just been teaching this stuff all week, so I'm, I'm, it's just all, all in my mind right now. But before we do that, it's always good to have a period of meditation, so we'll do some practice here for probably about 30 minutes or so. And so as you practice here at Insight, you're probably very used to traditional mindfulness practices, uh, Insight, Vipassana, Four Foundations of Mindfulness, probably part of the lexicon here, and also heart practice meditation, uh, the Brahma Vihara heart practice of loving kindness, uh, compassion, gratitude, equanimity. Um, 
So what I what I like to teach when I when I travel is a practice that you that you may have come across. Um, that's a very very simple practice. It's really at the core of all of this. As a practice called metta vipassana, and metta vipassana is uh, an integration of the foundations of mindfulness with the with the heart. So there's a way in which we're actually doing both. A lot of times we think about well, I have my mindfulness practice and I have my heart practices, and, and we separate them, which is fine uh, and helpful. But sometimes it's nice when we can see where and how do these practices integrate, and the, the system of practice which comes from the Burmese tradition, uh, the Mahasi Sayadaw and Sayadaw Upandita training of the mind and heart. is, is called Metta Vipassana, which is a practice where we we take this uh, quality of loving kindness or metta into uh, insight practice. So what does that mean? So when we think about metta or loving kindness conceptually, it's Kindness, kind friendliness, cooperation, these ideas. It's not that hard to conceptualize what that, what that is. But if I'm in the experience of metta, what is the actual embodied experience of metta? What is the somaticized uh, experience of metta? So if I was experiencing metta, how would I know that that's happening? And that cultivation. It, it's very simple to think about. So you can imagine that your, uh, sitting at a restaurant or a coffee shop and you're waiting for a friend that maybe you haven't seen in a while and you're excited to to see this friend and then they walk into the place and you come into contact with them and you get this feeling right this excitement this kindness this connection that that's what that feels like which is an experience that's very every day there's a there's an elation there's an interest and then when you, of course, when you start talking, you're, you're interested in what they're saying, you're connected to what they're saying. So it's, it's, to, it's, it's attention, it's a quality of attention that also has, uh, interest. And so experientially, it can be for us to be, so if I'm, so if I don't, so what if I don't have a good friend? How do I do it by myself? The experience of metta is this, uh, it can be a releasing of a kind of energy or a releasing of something that's, that's been painful or difficult. It can also be an expansion in the, in the mind and heart, a kind of spreading out. And really what it is, it, it, it's being able to, to, to access and to recognize that we have an internal locus of safety. That there's something inside my direct experience that feels, that feels safe, that feels at ease, that feels really okay. I'm sitting here. It's okay to be here. I feel stable. Good enough. And then from that, from that experience, uh, going into insight, vipassana practice is, is a lot easier for a lot of people. So we try to cultivate this mental state or this heart state of, 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 uh, ease or safety. And then from that place, it's a lot easier to go into things like impermanence, to go into the reality of, of ever going change. Because a lot of us are scared of change. The fear of change is a big topic for humans. And then when we start to recognize that it's actually a characteristic of all phenomena, it can be a little little destabilizing. You mean everything changes? Yes, everything changes. I don't like that. So I, I'm already I can get I can get activated into a fear emotion very quickly. 
Uh, actually, change is, is oftentimes a triggering event that that switches on the emotion of fear. So if I haven't been cultivating a degree of safety, of ease in that event, there's really not going to be a whole lot of chance I'm going to be able to stabilize in the fear. And also we see that, you know, everything is changing, but everything is, is what they call dukkha or imperfect. Nothing's perfect. Everything is a little bit off. Um, and so we're dealing with, with the imperfection of the body, the imperfection of our mind, just the imperfection that, you know, things aren't perfect. Things don't always work. Things don't always go our way. We don't always get what we want. Sometimes we get what we don't want. Sometimes we're separated from things that are important to us. We come into contact with things that are tragic. And so if I haven't built up or if I haven't developed this internal experience, in sixth grade biology they would call that homeostasis. Homeostasis is the internal experience of being at ease regardless of what's happening in the external environment. It's pretty handy to have that. And then thirdly, as we move into um, a big topic in Dharma practice, a very misunderstood topic, is the idea of, of self. May I be at ease? Do I have do I have a do I have a kind relationship with myself? Sometimes. Do I have a kind relationship to my mind? Is are me and my mind friendly? Do we get along? Is it a friendly relationship? Or is it a destructive relationship? Is it full of criticism and judgment and, <coughs> and blaming? Sometimes all all of those. Do I have a friendly attitude and relationship with my emotion, emotional life? Maybe, sometimes. So when we do the practice, what we'll do is um, <coughs> we'll practice samatha for a while and just... Uh, the best we can to bring that quality and then we'll uh, bring our attention and our awareness to the experience of change and perfection in ourselves. And that's a metta vipassana sort of intro practice and you might find it uh, quite useful. So you can just begin by allowing yourself to find a seated posture that feels good enough, feels <laughs> stable, reliable, And we will start and begin with the bell. set up this preparatory stage of practice as we enter into this practice session, see if you can begin by pouring the awareness of your mind into your body. So you can just imagine that you're pouring your mind into your body like you're filling an empty glass full of water down through the face and the shoulders. 
chest and belly, arms, hands, fingers, pouring the awareness into the chair, the cushion, contact of the body, down through the thighs, knees, into the feet. And as you pour awareness into the body, bringing some mindfulness to the experience of breathing. So recognizing that your body is breathing. And as you observe your body breathing, to locate somewhere in the body that's most easy for you to pay attention. Could be the belly, the chest, shoulders. Anywhere, really. And just as we begin establishing, developing mindfulness of breathing here in the present time experience, allowing the breath to come and go as it will, mindfulness of breathing. And if you find that the mind wanders into thoughts or plans, memories, anything like that, just recognize that happening and simply return your attention back to the body and allow the breath to rise and fall, come and go as it will. as you develop more awareness of the somatic body, see if you can feel into your heart center and just feeling in your own deepest aspiration or your own desire to be free. 
your own wish and natural desire to be free, to be at ease in this world, to be okay with your life just as it is. And as best you can, allowing yourself to access a feeling of kindness for yourself. A kindness, a type of acceptance of things just as they are, just as you are right now. Whatever the conditions you find yourself in. And if it's helpful, you can offer a phrase as you practice of, may I be at ease in this body just as it is. May I be in, at ease in this moment just as it is. Simply cultivating this attitude of acceptance and kindness for yourself here in this moment. And this aspiration for kindness and ease is the object of practice. Allowing that to expand or release
And now allowing mindfulness to fall back into the rhythm of the in and out breath. And as we come into contact with the present moment experience, we begin to acknowledge that to be with experience is to be with change. Simply, this can be recognized by seeing the ever-flowing change of the in and out breath. So as we bring this mental <coughs> quality to change, we can be at ease with how fast things are going. Having a patient attitude towards experience. May I be at ease with change, the reality of change. allowing your mind and body to fully experience the reality of change rising and passing away in every single moment of experience And then expanding further from change to also recognize that the experience you're having is not perfect. 
the body gets sore, uncomfortable, the mind wanders, have feelings of sadness or fear, confusion. That's okay. This practice is not about solving a problem, it's about just being with things as they are. Well, may I be at ease, may I bring a sense of kindness to any aspect of the experience that just doesn't feel quite right. Uncomfortable, unpleasant, hard to be with. May I be at ease with the body just as the body is right now. May I be at ease with my mind just as it is right now. And may I be at ease with my heart, my emotion just as it is right now. and extending kindness to any part of your experience that feels off.
As we bring awareness deeply into the body, we can expand now to the experience of self or you as a person sitting here in this room. And again, extending this quality of kindness towards yourself towards the experience of self, whether it's a physical experience, an emotional experience, or a conceptual experience. And then there's moments where you feel a strong sense of self arising to just be at ease, to be kind, to meet that with kindness. May I meet myself with kindness in this moment as best as I can. And to see if we can recognize the experience of self as being a process, not a static, fixed thing. So may I be at ease with this ever-changing, impermanent, imperfect experience of myself. May I be at ease with myself in this moment. And extending this aspiration out, my intention, my hope for ease and freedom is to continue to meet myself and I hold myself with this experience of kindness and ease, acceptance. I'm okay. A kind of handshake with yourself. understanding as best you can that this experience of self is an ever-changing, imperfect process that will continue on and on.
we can hold that practice in silence for the last five minutes here this evening.
practice. Nice to sit in the full room always. So um, I always find the best period of questions uh, around meditation happen right after it. So we have a time, period of time. If any, does anybody have any, any questions about about the practice we just did? Or anything they want to uh, ask or say about about this metta vipassana practice? Yeah, please in the back. Um, so during the times when you weren't giving us guidance, were we supposed to be continually sort of repeating those sorts of phrases to ourselves, or more going back to just like single point of focus? You could do either. I think the the key with that, whether it's single pointed focus of the back to the breath of the body of the phrase, is is using those when you notice that you're kind of thinking, you know. So that the strategy becomes going back to those. And now, and if you're experiencing the breath, or you're starting to get into this experience of of kindness towards uh, change, if you're there, then you can just sort of hang out. But it's mostly noticing when you're kind of pulled into ruminating or thinking, wandering about something else. So it's not super specific in that way. Yes, please. Do you differentiate between emotions and thoughts and also um, the emphasis on the embodied? Emotional states versus mind states. Sure. Yeah, they're very different. Emotion, the experience of emotion, the experience of thinking are very different experiences. But when you're in it, when you're in your experience, it's not so easy to draw the lines, right? So we can talk about thinking. It's like this emotion. The thing about emotion, I think that's most important to recognize is it's it's really more somaticized. It's more uh, a felt sense of an emotion. The other thing about emotion that's really important to know is that we're actually not always emotional. And we're mostly not emotional. Uh, most of the time we're not in an, in an episode of emotion. Um, there could be a mood happening or a mind state happening. Um, but thinking, I don't, I don't know what your experience is like, but thinking seems to be running around all the time. So I'm always having to deal with my mental states and my thinking. Uh, that always seems to be happening. But emotion... Uh, isn't always happening. So we might sometimes notice if there's an absence of emotion, then we can work more with what's happening in, in the mental state or the thinking. And to not go looking for it sometimes. Sometimes we go looking for the emotion, but we're actually not having one. So it's just kind of good to have that framework. Does that make sense? As much as it can, right? Yes, please. Uh, um, how can... Emotions be universal in all cultures and probably not have a word for them. Well, we don't always have a word for everything. You know, so the experience of them, they, 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 they don't always have a language for them, but they, they have the same physiology, they have the same facial, they, there's, there's some, just some criteria that they have found that across cultures everybody, everybody shares. Whether or not we have a word for it, it maybe doesn't matter so much, even though we're having that experience. We all do different things as a result of them, but they are part of, of, of human evolution, um, and everybody but it does. Just have. suggest something more profound. That, I mean, like 
somebody kills somebody in Polyland and they, they don't say how he was angry or he was hurt or something, what if they must say something else. I wasn't there. I have no yeah, idea yeah. what they would have done. Yeah. They use, like, you know, hatred. Of course, we have the Holly word for hatred, which is kind of similar to what we would say for anger. So there's, there's, there's things that are close, but they don't have a word for the way that we experience the physiology of emotion. Yeah, in the back. So from my understanding, um, heart and mind are the same word, meaning the same thing. So your emotion there is one and the same with your mind. Yeah, the Pali, or the, in, in Buddhism, they use this word chitta, which means heart mind. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. they don't, they don't make a distinction between the two. But we really do, actually. We, we talk about our psychological experience and we talk about our emotional experience a lot of times in different ways. Whereas in, in, in the East, or really in the Buddhist tradition, they, they think of the heart and the mind as the same experience. And they also would understand that the mind is, is present all of the time. So in, in our understanding of emotion, as I mentioned earlier, um, we're not always emotional. Uh, we're not always in an ex- we're not always in an experience of emotion. Um, so that's where it becomes tricky when we use this word chitta heart mind, because in Buddhist psychology they would recognize that, that that's that's present in every moment of consciousness. Would it be fair to say, so I get um, the sort of three characteristics, like I get impermanence, get imperfection, and the not-self portion of it's always like slippery and flickering. Totally. And so for the first time, like during this sit, um, I had this notion of self is not something that is, but it's as an experience, as a, I mean, there's like obviously some thing that is self-it, self, it, not self-ish, but like self-ish. Yeah, no, I get it, I get it, yeah, self-like. Yeah. Self, you know, yeah. self-like, yeah. Um, would it be fair to think of it kind of in, in, in that sense? It's not a thing that is, but a thing that like is being experienced as like yeah. software laying on top of some sort of experiential <clears throat> being, because there's sensation that's real, right? Yeah. But there's not... I think what you're saying is spot on. Uh, there's a, a, a Pali scholar, a Buddhist teacher named Andrew Olinsky, who I've studied with a lot, who says that the self is not a thing that exists, but an event that occurs. And it, it, it's, it's an event. It's a mental event and a mental construct. Of course, we see it a lot. It's a pretty common event. Uh, so it's actually more useful from this perspective. Really, what you're saying is actually that the self is a verb, not a noun. It's not, you know, we could be a noun per, per, person, place, and thing, but actually the Dharma is saying, actually, no, not so much. It's really a process, it, and so we're never done. We're, we're always growing and expanding and changing, and, and so it's a process that we find ourselves in. So to try to pin it down as, like, I am this, uh, we're never getting the full picture. But we do it, I mean, I don't know, all the time. It's sort of what I do. We have to do it in a conventional, relative way to get through the day, but... Uh, when we're trying to see our relationship to the self experientially, it's useful to see it in this way of a pro- the way that you described it so well. I think that's spot on in terms of practice. <clears throat> Thank you. Okay. Anybody else?
where to begin. So, when we think about, uh, so maybe the part of the topic that I talk about often is this idea of a war on emotion. So what do I mean by that? Um, and so if we look at our culture, and it may be a bit of an overgeneralizing, but if we look at the bigger picture, uh, it's fairly safe to say that we have declared a kind of war against uh, emotions, unpleasant mind state, any sort of internal conflict or even suffering, any sort of unpleasant experience that I have, here what we do, it, it tends to be pathologized. So if I'm having a hard time uh, in my life for a variety of reasons, it tends to, there's usually, a, there can be a diagnosis, there can be a pathology, there can be a way in which if I'm having a hard time that I must be doing something wrong. And so, uh, we don't see the pharmacology industry and a lot of these industries haven't, they've succeeded so well as a result of this phenomenon and that we, we really have a tendency to, uh, become overly obsessed and overly pathologizing of the difficulty that we have internally, whether it could be a psychological, it could be emotional, it could be in our relational, but any, any of the difficulties we have in our life, we, we kind of, uh, really go, we go to war against that. We don't want that to be. We, we engage in behaviors to avoid that, to change that, to control that. And, and culturally, we have become very interested in studying how badly people do. We're very interested in, in diagnosing and, and why do people do so bad and what are the causes of why people do so bad. But really actually not so interested in what are the causes of well-being. Which is one of the things that the Dalai Lama, when he wanted to bring the monks into the laboratory and study them in the fMRI, he said, can we also, can we find what, what are the causes of well-being? How good can people do? And what are the things, what are the qualities uh that allow us to flourish and to be happy. What what are those? And we haven't done much of that here in, in, in the in the United States in sort of really modern culture. We're much more interested in the other thing. The other reason I think this is important, especially around emotion, is that um, one thing that I could say that I, if you hear me say anything tonight, it would be really helpful to hear this, and I think it's been a problem. We really have to be careful, and we have to stop categorizing emotions as being negative and positive. And that we have negative emotions, and we have positive emotions. We actually just have emotion. And actually, as, as a system, emotions are they're ethically neutral. They're, they're, there's no qualitative value to them from the view of emotion. The question becomes, do I have a constructive relationship to the emotion or do I have a destructive relationship to the emotion? So anger is a good example. Most people would categorize anger as a negative emotion and I shouldn't get angry. Um, but anger is, uh, is, a, is a universal human emotion. We all have it. It's not going anywhere. You're not going to get rid of it. Um, the question becomes, when I become angry, do do I have a regrettable emotional episode, is the language we use? Do I feel bad later about what I did or said when I became angry? Do I have these destructive emotional outcomes when I'm angry? Or can I have a constructive response to that emotional experience? 
And this really changes the, the way that we think about emotions because a lot of us would think, well, anger is negative, shame is negative, eh, sadness not so good either. And, and all of a sudden the whole list is just like emotions just become sort of negative and they become this problem that we need to solve and this thing I need to get rid of. And, and, and it becomes a little bit pathologized. And one thing we know about them is they're here to stay. You're, you're, they have a, they have a role. They have an evolutionary role. We have them for a reason. And when, when, when we're lost in the grips of them, when we're having uh, the uh, the intensity of an emotion, a lot of times we we don't have access to our prefrontal cortex and we don't have our wits about us. And have you ever had a an emotional episode? You can really really emotional, and you kind of get spit out the other side uh, twenty minutes later, an hour later, and you go, "What the hell was that all about?" What was I thinking? How did that actually happen? I can't believe I said that to my wife or my friend. You're like, well, because during that experience, uh, you were you were lost in the grips and the intensity of that. We weren't able to to work through that. And so we want to. The reason why I like this metta vipassana or these heart practices has been such a tremendous part of my practice is they've really helped me work with my emotional experience. And so when we talk about one of the outcomes, one of the contemplative outcomes of this that we see really in, I would say, all forms of contemplative practice or Buddhist practice, especially here as it's kind of taken root in the States, is, and, I, and also one thing I want to say when I say spiritual bypass, I really don't mean for this to be a derogatory term. Um, it's not really, because now it's just now it's just another pathology, right? Now I'm spiritual bypassing and I need to stop doing that. See how quickly it just everything falls into this, like, I need to stop doing business. Uh, spiritual bypass is not a, a, a derogatory term. It's something that happens to all of us. But it's a way in which we consciously or unconsciously can use contemplative or meditative techniques to avoid or to repress uh, emotional experiences that we don't want to feel. And you can get really good at it, actually. I, I've gotten very good at it. I... Uh, will cop to the fact that I think I didn't feel sadness for almost a decade. And um, there were some side effects that weren't great. I actually happened to be single eight of those ten years during that time. Hmm. I'm not going to get into that right now. That's a $250 an hour person conversation. So we'll politely leave that aside. But it turns out the role of sadness evolutionary, the reason we have sadness is to elicit connection from others. Oops. If I dropped the ball on that one. So there's a way in which we can really use you know, things like attention, things like certain practices uh, to suppress or to avoid or to really not sort of not deal with or not want to feel with uh, these, these uh, emotions that are difficult for us. Which sometimes can feel successful. You're like, yeah, I've been practicing this meditation. I'm less angry. It's really working out. I don't explode so much. And maybe that's happening in a constructive way, or maybe there's a suppression happening. And so there's a way in which we just we don't. It's not like we have to stop doing this, but we want to become more aware, perhaps, of ways in which we might be using our practice of meditation as a strategy or a tool to avoid 
are really innate human experiences that we're all subject to. And to some degree, I, I and again, not to blame anybody, but if we look at sort of the history of, you know, sort of when 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 Americans are really sort of affluent Americans, sort of you know, white middle class Americans maybe started really practicing in the 70s, whether it was Tibetan Buddhism or Insight Meditation, when it kind of started taking off, we were introduced to this idea of enlightenment, and that Buddhism is all about enlightenment. And when I hear enlightenment, I assume that enlightenment means I'm not going to have any more unpleasant emotions. I'm not going to have bad feelings. I'm going to end suffering. I'm going to be all better now. And when I master the Buddhist meditation techniques, all of this difficult emotional experience is going to not be a problem for me anymore. And I'm just going to be sort of... To some degree, we go at it as if we want kind of an emotional lobotomy. And, to, and, and you know, to no fault of nobody, but when I hear enlightenment, I'm like, yeah, cool, that sounds like Buddhist heaven. <laughs> I mean, they can take on that tone. And so as the practices have been, uh, practices haven't really been that long, it's no surprise that we find um, people who are leaders in, in Buddhist communities or people who are practitioners can really develop in a very big way, this kind of tendency to have a spiritual bypass, which can look a lot like uh, equanimity, which as we know, equanimity is this uh, evenness of mind and body. Uh, and, and one thing about that that's so difficult and so uh, destructive is equanimity. That there's a near enemy of equanimity, which is that of indifference or a kind of apathy. So people who can appear to be very equanimous, very calm, very at ease in the face of adversity, very awakened, enlightened beings, could actually give it, they could totally care less. It's not that they're equanimous, but there's a sense of like, I don't, whatever, I don't really care. There's, a, there's an indifference, a cold indifference, an apathy about that, which is, a, which is actually a fairly large, to be able to do that, you really have to sh- do a lot of work to be able to shut down emotion. You know, there's a lot of suppression that needs to happen for one to be able to do that. Again, I don't mean this to be derogatory. I don't think people sit down and go, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get into meditation so I can learn how to suppress all my emotions that I don't want to feel. It's not like we got into, into it to do that, but it can be a kind of byproduct if we're not, if we're not careful. I was, um, teaching at, uh, last year when I was here, I was teaching at 1440 at the street in Scott Valley with, uh, with one of my friends and colleagues, Dharma teacher George Hoff, that many of you know, who's a really, really fabulous Dharma teacher. I think he's actually one of the most underutilized Dharma teachers, um, brilliant teacher who really integrates Dharma into a lot of science around attachment theory and meaningful life. Uh, we were at this, teaching this retreat. And uh, also at the retreat uh, was uh, Gabor Mate. Gabor Mate and I was was teaching a retreat, and there was like you know five people in me and George's retreat, and like you know eighty people in Gabor Mate's retreat. Uh, he was a big draw, Gabor. Many of you probably know Gabor or know who he is. But there was a there was a public lecture between Gabor Mate and Adyashanti, who's a who's a meditation teacher, I think, in, in really in the Zen tradition. And they were having a conversation about spiritual bypass was the topic. And so 1440 uh, invited me and George and said, would you guys like to go to this lecture? And of course we were like, yeah, of course we want to go to this lecture. 
And so the topic of spiritual bypass is this uh, sort of renowned Zen teacher on the stage in Gabor Mate, who's a, who's a medical doctor and does a lot of work with trauma. And uh, Gabor Mate uh, asks Adyashanti the first question. He says, so Adyashanti, tell me, how is it, Adyashanti, that in the Buddhist tradition we have all these uh, so-called enlightened masters, these awakened beings, as they're called, and these people who have achieved this spiritual awakening, this spiritual enlightenment. How is it, Adyashanti, that we have all these people in the world of Buddhism who have done that, but who are actually engaging in uh, sexual abuse with their students, who are uh, having abusive relationships with their students, they're having power dynamics with their communities, they're actually causing a lot of harm. How is it possible that you could have some sort of awakened spiritual enlightenment and also engage in these very destructive, harmful behaviors? And you can look on the, uh, the look of Adyashanti's face. He was not very happy about this question. Uh, it's the first question of the night. And he, you know, he kind of went back and forth a little bit, and he said this thing that sort of made me and George cringe, where he said, he said, on one level, he said, people can be very, very enlightened and very, very spiritually advanced on one level, and on another level, they can be very, very spiritually or um, immature or unaware. And of course, I, I, I completely and totally reject that idea. Um, that that's really not there's something else happening uh, in that dynamic. That's not this level system. That there's there's, a, there's something really really off with the individual. Because if we look at the Dharma tradition, and of course, I wanted there was a lot of questions, and I wanted to ask him a question, but I didn't get a chance to, and it's probably good that I didn't. <laughs> but. Um, Part of it was this question, okay, okay, so if we look at the Buddhist tradition and we look at Dharma practice, we, we learn very quickly that the core of the practice is that of sila, is really where the practice begins, is this sila, which is this, which is this intentional way in which we engage in our life in a way where we're taking a, a fairly big commitment to live a life of harmlessness. A life of, of ethics, a life, a life of where we're not, uh, where we're recognizing the suffering of the world and where who are making this commitment to say, I really want to make sure that I'm not contributing to more of that. And so this is really kind of, as you all know, Thila Samadhi Panya, it's really pretty much Dharma 101. Do no harm as best you can. And so how you can be uh, spiritually enlightened and actually participating in harm on a bodily level. Uh, there's no awareness, there's no in that exchange with another human being, that there's, there's, there's a lack of awareness that harm is being created. Um, to, to call that enlightenment or spiritual enlightenment, I think, is a tragedy. Obviously, there's something happening in that person's experience that is not being accessed. There's a, there's a probably tremendous not, uh, there's a probably a tremendous disconnect, which is why. I think the word spirituality can be problematic because really what Dharma practice is, is all about embodiment. It's about actually being in your body. It's not a disconnection. It's not being up here in some other privileged realm. Uh, it's actually about being right into your bones, into your hands, into, into our, our relationship and how we connect and exchange with other people. 
And, and of course, if we look at the tradition, we look at the foundations of mindfulness, everything starts with the body. We're being in our bodies in a way that feels kind and compassionate and appreciative. And so and at the same time that we were at this lecture, it was very uh, sort of auspicious. There was there, there was a lot of, of this going on in, 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 in actually various communities, uh, Dharma communities around the country. There was this kind of little epic episode of, of it happening in a bunch of different communities and a bunch of different uh, fallout with different teachers and from different from all different traditions and so on and so forth. And it was interesting to be at this lecture with somebody from really the older school uh, who, you know, and, and I have nothing against Adyashanti. I don't mean to be judgmental of him. I think he, I'm glad I wasn't up there with Gabor Mate having to deal with these questions. But I think he wrestled and did the best he could to do that. But there is this way in which we can separate that with this idea that somebody can somehow be really, really advanced on some level and really, really kind of uh, harmful and destructive on another level. It just seems very... Uh, sort of impossible to me. I really can't wrap my head around that one. Especially when we think about the component of of integrity and ethics and really this kind of idea, uh, harmlessness. Shouldn't be that hard to get that one down. <laughs> you know. And, and and most of us, you know, we, we, we get that one down. And one of the things that's really interesting about practice is a lot of times, uh, people I work with, the students that I work with, a lot of people I've worked with who have addiction and trauma and have been through some really, really difficult experiences in their life. A lot of these people I know who have really tremendous integrity, tremendous integrity. They've overcome so much adversity. They've been through so much shit. And they're, they're, the way that they act in the world is very, very harmless. But they don't give themselves very much credit for that. Because they, because their meditation practice isn't going well or they're having difficulty in their emotions. They're having some suffering still. They're having some difficulty. And they're so preoccupied with wanting to get that right that there's a way in which a lot of us as Dharma practitioners, lay practitioners, who take this practice seriously, we don't reflect or we don't give ourselves credit or we don't acknowledge the beauty in our lives of, of the way that we live and our action and our speech and, and the way that we've made a commitment to being harmless. We somehow think that getting the psycho-emotional experience, you know, under control is, is maybe more important. And we can just overlook this reality of sila, which sometimes translated as ethics, but I think of it as two things, as it's a discipline. We have to, we have a discipline to our own sense of integrity or our values. So reflecting on our values of, of, of harmlessness or of kindness or whatever you're either everybody in the room may be a little different it's not about ascribing to the buddhist list but it's about actually really feeling into your own sense of what your values are and then being able to live from those values and having some discipline around uh, being honest and and having integrity in your relationships and in your relationship to money and your relationship to the planet and all of these things and a lot of us are probably doing very well in that territory, but there's no uh, there's no gratitude. There's no uh, sense of, of feeling good about oneself as a result of that. Maybe this isn't true for you, but I, I find this to be true uh, in lots of Dharma communities and lots of people that I work with. I'm like, 
people who give themselves a hard time, I'm like, man, you are really doing well. You're like living really, really well. You're living with a lot of integrity. You've overcome so much stuff. And you're giving yourself a hard time because your mind wanders when you meditate. That's the fucking problem. <laughs> right? It's like we get it back asswards. It's like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Forgot about that one. And so there's this, this, this part of the work that we do in cultivating emotional balance that really comes out of this idea of, of sila and harmlessness is what's uh, in cognitive science called cognitive intelligence. And cognitive intelligence is this beautiful idea where when we think about sort of the eightfold path, it's sort of like we start with right view. So we have the right view, and the right view is maybe to be uh, to be harmless, right? So we, we hold that as a view. We hold that as a value. My, my value, harmlessness. And then I try to bring that into my intentions. Because I value harmlessness, I'm going to try to be careful around my intentions and recognizing intentions I have that are maybe rooted in ill will or rooted in greed or rooted in jealousy, that are rooted in something that, that aren't in line with my values, actually. And then from that place, I try not to act or to speak or to act on those uh, destructive intentions. And if I'm able to kind of complete the task, my value is harmlessness, my intention is harmlessness, and I'm able to speak and act in a way, when I get the follow-through, that's what's called cognitive intelligence or cognitive balance. It means that my values and my actions are congruent. It's a beautiful thing. It's actually one of the, con one of the constituents for happiness. That happiness, one of the ingredients of happiness is, is, a, is a cognitive intelligence, is that my values in, in, in this life and my actions are aligned. And when we see that, when we see the fruition of that, we feel good about ourselves. If we're aware of it, if we have made a choice to pay attention to that, if we actually are letting that be part of our Dharma path, part of our Dharma practice. And so there's a way in which we can see, uh, and I actually have had to learn how to pay attention to that. Because I'm one of those people who can, uh, you know, I, I've put a lot of energy, I've been in recovery for a long time, I, I try to be generous, I try to be kind, but a lot of times when I'm, when I'm being generous or I'm being kind or I'm in the experience of compassion, I have this attitude of like, well, I should be doing this anyway. Like, I don't get any credit for doing the right thing. But, you know, if you look around, not everybody's trying. <laughs> I think, in fact, to a large degree, most people aren't even trying. So the fact that we, we even trying uh, is, I think, a, a tremendous value to ourselves and to the world, that we're even trying to, to do the right thing. And so we can kind of start to see how this works. And so what that can do Part of spiritual bypass, in the behavioral sense, is ways in which we're, we're engaging in harmful behaviors where we might feel like we have the right intention, but we're not being aware of the impact on the other person. So there is this dynamic between there's, there's intention and there's also impact. And if you cause somebody harm, you don't get to, to decide that you didn't. 
it's that's not your role. So this is where it gets complicated, is that we can actually sometimes, and we've all had those experiences, have you ever had the best intentions with somebody and you said something and it didn't land so good? <laughs> and the impact of what was said, even though the intention was good, was honest and felt good, the impact it had on the other person was harmful. And our job is not to go, well, hey, man, I mean, that's, that's not what I meant. You took it the wrong way. Clearly, it's your problem. Right? That's not really constructive. That's a, almost a really wonderful example of a destructive outcome. So the, the way in which we, um, we do have to take responsibility for our intentions, but we also have to be responsible and aware and compassionate and, and, and concerned with others enough to a degree that we can begin to see the impact that our that our actions and our speech have on the people around us. And of course, this is so important and a great practice when it comes to the people that you're close to. People, um, you know, in your marriage, in your family, in your friend circles, in your Dharma communities. There's a way in which we can begin to be a little bit more responsible for the intentions that we have and the impact they have on other people. So if we um, kind of just think about that for a minute, which is, a, I think, a big part of practice that gets tremendously overlooked. And so when we start to think about things like mindfulness, where does mindfulness fit into this equation? Part of mindfulness is to, uh, the Pali term sati means something like to relax, to recollect, or to remember. But it's not just to remember, to recognize the present moment experience, which is mostly what we associate mindfulness with, with present time awareness, right? That's kind of what it's become. Live in the now, just be in the now, and everything will work out. Really? I'm not so convinced. But just being in the now is going to solve all my problems. <laughs> so it's been really, of course, totally and tremendously watered down. But if you look at sort of the way that the Dalai Lama, who I've been really inspired by in the last couple of years, and his, his, his really view on secularity, he's almost a bit of a heretic, the Dalai Lama, because he's so uh, informed and interested in, in, in these Western contemplative wisdom traditions of science and neuroscience and Really kind of a fascinating person. But his part of that is remembering and to recollect. Part of that huge aspect of mindfulness is to remember and to recollect our sense of values and purpose. So sati, to remember, to recognize. What we're, what we're wanting to remember, to recognize constantly is our sense of values and our sense of integrity. is really our sila. How mindful am I of that? Or do we just sort of check that off? It's like, well, I'm a Buddhist. Of course I have the sila. <laughs> really? Do you? <coughs> it's not a belief system. It's a behavioral system. And so remembering to recognize that sense of... And it just goes both ways because, A, on one hand, when we do live integrity, and a lot of us, I think I would probably argue, everybody in this room is probably trying pretty hard to be a good person. But when we remember to recognize that, we, we feel a sense of gratitude and appreciation and we this sort of uh, mudita, sympathetic joy about, about ourselves and our lives and the way that we're living. And on the other side of that, when we remember to recognize that we're becoming more aware 
of these uh, outcomes that uh, that are harmful to other people, and we're more likely or more we're more quickly to to make a repair or to make a remedy or to say, oh, actually, you know what, I, I regret that exchange that we had. I feel I feel bad about how I spoke or how I acted. I'm I'm sorry. And I don't know if you've ever been on the if you've ever been harmed by somebody and they come back and acknowledge it. Uh, it feels pretty good, doesn't it? Like, oh wow, doesn't happen maybe as much as we like it to, but it does feel quite good. And so, 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 what are some of the ways out of these trappings? Um, one of the ways out of these trappings around spiritual bypass and around just being aware of of, of ways in which we might be avoiding is really another type of intelligence, is sort of emotional intelligence, which is really not that. Uh, it's a fairly simple concept. It's just knowing uh, when you're emotional. It turns out to be really helpful because we're we're not always emotional and we're mostly not emotional. But when we are emotional, being aware of the arising of that emotion, being able to recognize it. And, and like we talk about in the third foundation of mindfulness where the, the Buddha's instruction is to recognize I have anger in my mind. I have greed in my mind. I have delusion in my mind. Right? recognizing this introspective awareness of what is it that's in my mind right now, being able to recognize, I'm angry right now. I have anger in my mind. I probably need to be careful about what I do or say right now. Because when I'm angry, I often do things and say things that I regret later. I need to be careful. I also perhaps want to remember to recognize in this mindfulness that my intention and my values is to be harmless. And that's really, that's mindfulness on the go, mindfulness in action, saying, okay. Uh, and what that does is it allows us to reappraise the situation, it allows us to look at the present moment experience in a, in, in, in a little bit of a different way. There's a term in, in, in Vipassana practice, I forget what it is, where they talk about practice as something, as a repeatedly looking at, to repeatedly look at over and over again. So as we, we do that, we, we do that with the breath, we do that with the body. We constantly, repeatedly look at something. And every time we look at something, our perspective about that changes just a little bit. And really, part of the definition of meditation is uh, to familiarize the mind with objects. And so there can be a way, uh, way, one of the ways that we have insight into our experience and we begin to have knowledge into our experiences and we become familiar with aspects of our experience that we, we're not aware of or that we don't know much about. And a lot of that, a lot of that I have found to be emotion. What, what do you know about your experience with something like shame? That will silence the room relatively quickly. So I'm not, I, I actually don't, I'm, I'm not familiar with that at all. I, I actually don't want anything to do with that. I want to get rid of that. So there's an aversion. And as we all probably know by now, aversion is not a tool for liberation. So when we think about practice in in that way, it's like any time that we're pushing away an object that arises, we're actually, we're not familiarizing. There's a quality of denying. There can be a sort of denial. I don't feel shame. I don't get sad. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm a Buddhist meditator. I've overcome that. Don't do that anymore. 
I have officially learned how to suppress that emotion every time it arises. Thank you very much. There's not a familiarity with that experience. And so when we start to think about, um, so what are the, what are the factors? What are the things that allow us? What are the situations in our life where we do engage in behavior, speeches, or action that are out of alignment with my values? For me, that's almost always emotion as a culprit in that exchange. When I'm in a good mood and I feel at ease and I feel present, I rarely do or say things that I regret. I do, I do pretty good when I feel homeostatic. It's when I become emotional, when I become sad, I become dismissive. When I become angry, I get defensive. When I'm scared, I become catastrophizing. When I'm in shame, I shut down. When I'm in disgust, I want nothing to do with. That's what happens in those experiences. And then I sometimes do or say things and uh, that I regret later. So how do we learn to become you know, familiar with these? And there's a big setup, I think, for us folks who are in the sort of insight world because one thing that I've noticed over the years that was really something I had to think about was uh, I would go sit these long retreats. I know you probably have gone and sat these long insight retreats, three months. I've sat the three-month retreat. I've sat a month long a couple times, two weeks many times, tons of 10 days. Is when I go on retreat, I totally crush it. I'm like calm. I'm at ease. I don't have emotional episodes on retreat, mostly because no eye contact, no talking, no phone. They politely, at these insight centers, politely and very uh, skillfully remove all the emotional triggers. I mean, I might get triggered by oatmeal on day 47, (laughs) but I can usually manage that one because I know on day 47 is going to be oatmeal and day 48 and the whole damn three-month retreat is going to be oatmeal. So it doesn't trigger me too bad. But I would notice, I would go sit these long retreats, and I would feel, I would really feel like I was getting somewhere in my practice, really smoothing it out, smoothing out the edges. And then I would go have an exchange with another human being. And I would get emotional. I'd get angry. And I'd be like, I can't believe I just sat for three months and this person is going to make me angry? How dare they make me angry? So now I become blaming and defensive. And so the, the, the thing about that so hard is that as much as meditation practice is tremendously valuable in, in this work I'm talking about and so useful, is that a lot of times uh, the emotional episodes that we have, they typically don't happen on a cushion with our eyes closed, sitting quietly. They don't happen in a long retreat or in a retreat center. They happen on the day-to-day. They happen in our family relationships, in our romantic relationships. They happen... Has anybody ever had an emotional episode at work? Right? Yeah, like every day. And so a lot of it has to do with... uh, A lot of these emotional episodes, they happen in, in the relationship field, in the field of relations. And of course, one of the downsides of, of practitioners is 
if we have found that to be, if we have found human relationships to be very, very difficult for us, we can have a tendency to want to withdraw, to retreat, to withdraw. We withdraw more and more and more and more and more and more. And we somehow think, um, actually, you know what the problem is? It's other people. Other people are the problem. I'm fine. Doing great. I'll go sit in a cave. I'll suffer in silence for eternity by myself. Just keep the other people away. And so for some people, probably nobody in this room, I, I don't know if anybody here is going to shave their head and put on the brown robes anytime soon, and that we do live in the world of relationships and money. We live, we, we all have signed up to live in the world of emotional triggers. And so the question becomes, uh, how can I bring my practice of Dharma, my practice of mindfulness, my practice of the heart, into the messy and complicated world of emotion? To the point where I'm, I'm choosing, I'm, I'm going to take responsibility for the emotions that arise in my experience and do the best I can to, to have a constructive outcome. I'm, 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 I'm taking that on as part of my practice. I'm, I'm recognizing that, that my emotions, it's not about who done it. It's just about you were born into a human body and this came on the hard drive. You know, and every, it, it, it's true for all of us. It's really part of our of our shared humanity. And the thing about emotions is they do, they lead to our greatest joy, right? And our most painful sorrows. It's a very, very uh, wide range of experiences we can have as a result of our emotions. So the, the question becomes, can I use my emotional life as a vehicle, as actually part of the path of liberation? Can I take that on? Can I use sadness, the embodied experience of sadness, as part of my practice, as part of a tool for liberation, rather than this unpleasant feeling I need to learn how to get rid of? You know, because I read the I read the text, I read the the books, I I read the there is a, I read the opening line of the Satipatthana that says this is the direct path for liberation, for overcoming grief, sorrow, lamentation, despair. I read that as if I get Buddhism right, I won't get sad ever again. That's what it sounds like to me. What it looks like. And then if I can't do that, if I'm getting sad, then then I, I I'm a failure, Dharma failure. So then I try to say, well, okay, well, how can I use this experience of sadness as a, as a vehicle, as a tool for liberation, rather than this problem that I have to solve or this experience I have to get rid of? Because the one thing about emotion as a system, as experience that I really appreciate, is it's a completely fair system. From the view of Buddhist psychology, it's an ethically neutral system. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's an open system. And I don't know about you, but not very many systems I've encountered in my life I would deem as fair. But this one is. And so sadness can be uh, can be the vehicle for connection with other people, can be the vehicle for, for real actual compassion, to really, really hold the experience of loss. That's the trigger for sadness. The universal trigger for sadness is loss. Have you ever lost anybody important to you? 
Give her a lot of job. Loft is, 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 is built into the fabric of the universe. And so when, we, when, we, when we're confronted by loss, we feel sad. Right? And so that's an opportunity for actual embodiment and compassion and a sense of care and connecting with other people who also have had the experience of loss. That's, that's how that works. That's, what's that, that, that's what that's for. It's not about trying to get rid of it. If somebody really, really close to you dies, would you expect at all? Would you even want to not get sad? Would you be like, oh, whatever, well, impermanence. <laughs> so be it. That's that cold <laughs> indifference. That's that uh, whatever kind of attitude. That's a, 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 the near enemy of wisdom and discernment is a kind of cynical attitude. It's kind of like, oh, well, shit, you know, everybody dies. What are you going to do? <laughs> Now, that's no way to be. So we, we, we see the, the emotions arise a lot of times in appropriate relationship to what's happening. And so we can I use that sadness as a vehicle to develop compassion and wisdom? Or do I feel overwhelmed by it? Do I collapse into it? Do I use it as a tool for isolating myself from other people? Do I allow it to play into my grief narrative? Does the experience of sadness just play into this, to the story I have about me being a person who has to go through all these bad things? Why does bad things always happen to me? And then I and, and grief is so closely tied to identity. There's a we all have we all can find that we have a sort of narrative of grief that runs through our life, and it's an identity. It's a story. It's a big selfing. Grief grief is a mass of selfing. And a lot of times, and this is very counterintuitive, but a lot of times that selfing around the grief narrative is a strategy to try to avoid the fact that I just feel sad right now. And then that grief gets compounded with anger. I'm, I'm sad. I'm angry. Why is this happening? It's tied into my identity. That's a lot of suffering. So would you rather live in the narrative the, uh, of the suffering around the emotion, or would you rather just allow the emotion to arise and pass away? Sadness is, is, is five to nine minutes. Do you want to do the five to nine minute sadness, or do you want to do a lifetime of a narrative of a person who always has these experiences? And I say this because I lived for this whole decade I was talking about. I lived as a victim of my own grief narrative. I was so bought into the story of my life, of this person who has to go through these bad things. Why am I a person living in a world who has to go through bad things? If I could just meditate, if I could just get good at this mindfulness of breathing business, I would be out of that. But I'm not really good at that either, it turns out. I'm not really good at anything, actually, it turns out. It just sort of sucks to be me, I guess. Period. Hang out there for a lifetime. And so, it, uh, the thing about this also that's very encouraging is as we start to bring, so maybe you start to bring mindfulness more into these uh, episodic emotional experiences. Uh, you don't need, when you have the episode of emotion, you don't even need to know which one it is. You just want to be able to recognize, I've become emotional, and maybe I can apply some mindfulness and mental, 
some of these contemplative tools I have, can I bring them into the experience of emotion and, and self-regulate? Can I down-regulate the emotion? Which something like mindfulness of breathing will do. So if you've been practicing mindfulness of breathing, the next time you become emotional, it's better to go down into the body than to go hyperactive into the cognitive, which is typically what we do when we become emotional, when we become cognitively hyperactive, thinking too much about the whole thing, what's going to happen. But actually we want to go the other way. We want to, uh, and so that's really that foundational practice. That's why mindfulness of breathing is such a great practice because it promotes focused attention, it promotes sensory clarity, and it promotes self-regulation. So even in the episode, even even I'm like, I have no idea what emotion I'm feeling right now, but I definitely am in, in it. I can... And, and the, the sort of the, um, we call it the AC, the air conditioner of emotional episodes, is awareness and choice. So I'm aware that I'm emotional. Can I choose what I'm about to do or say? Do I have choice? Just really with a powerful, the, the, the liberation of emotion, destructive emotions lies in our power to choose. It's also the same as that Viktor Frankl quote that we all love so much. Between stimulus and response is a gap. And our ability to increase that gap allows us to choose, which is really what our freedom lies. And so being able to, awareness plus choice, sort of the air conditioner, the cooling down of the experience. Being able to choose. Most of my life, when I become became emotional, I didn't choose. I just did shit. Reacted. Um, and then, you know, oftentimes would blame the other person for my reaction. Well, I mean, I wouldn't have said that if you didn't do the thing you did. It's your fault. Right. So it's so easy to do that. Right. So destructive, especially. And, and if it's in a relationship with somebody that we actually value the relationship. So to just end, I want to hear some questions before we run out of time. Thank you for listening. Um, yeah. Yeah, Mom? Thinking about your, what you were saying about values, and I mean, this is blatantly me processing out loud, watching a Dharma teacher just <coughs> become an asshole in my head of the night, right? Um, but I wonder, in my own mind, because it's so hard to see delusion, you never see it until you do, right? Right. And it, Usually you see it retroactively. Yeah, and if you have wonderful good friends who you really trust, and you're not the type who's going to bristle and tell them to get bent, you know, um, like, that's helpful to help you see delusion, but generally speaking, my experience has been, I don't see it until I do. So you add to the top of that things like institutionalized sexism, institutionalized racism, mm -hmm. and the cultural system that we have that conditions people in particular kinds of ways, and you end up with these particular kinds of delusions that are excessively hard to see. Sure. And so I'm wondering where that fits in, because sometimes what we value, we think we're living according to our values. Mm -hmm. Well, you're talking specifically, a big, a big component of what you're talking about is actually the emotion of disgust. 
which is a universal emotion, and that disgust is always accompanied, often accompanied by a strong sense of aversion. Mm -hmm. So most of us would think, right, we, we think racism is disgusting, sexism is disgusting, the climate being destroyed is disgusting. We meet that with a sense of disgust for very obvious and important reasons. But what happens is that we, the, the signal of disgust is, is get away from me. So we're not interested in trying to maybe help the system. So it's like the, the, the planet's dying. I don't even want to, I can't even go there. Mm -hmm. And so there's, there's not an opportunity for us to bring compassion or to try to, to work with some of these systems or work with some of these people because we've, mm -hmm. we've pushed them out of our experience. And, and that, that can be kind of a destructive response. And so in a sense, working with that as a practitioner, <coughs> what you're looking for is that. That, that kind of self thing that arises where it's like, oh, whoa, whoa, the armor is up full force and it's expanding. Yeah. And, and let me check into that for a second. And a lot of times we have to back away when it's strong, but part of it is that equanimity of like, or really trying to come to terms with our shared humanity. As you know, like a lot of, you know, hurt people hurt people. And a lot of these people who are really uh, causing a lot of the harm in this world are probably deeply unhappy, maybe. And so, um, trying to tap into a shared humanity and a sense of compassion of not like get away from me but I, but is there anything I can do in this exchange is there anything I can do that's going to be helpful sometimes the answer is no but trying to stay with it rather than that pushing away and a lot of people feel like you know they want to help with the environment but it's so over if there's a sense of overwhelm then we actually can't do much and we don't have a capacity to be with the experience. And if the other people aren't willing to meet us halfway, there's not much we can do. Right. I would say totally. It's a tough. It's a. It's a tough dichotomy for the humans. This is what you're talking about. But it's, it's our. You know, as practitioners, we can be interested in that. Like, oh, gee, I wonder what that's about. Maybe I can. Maybe I can look at this differently. Maybe I'm not seeing this. Maybe there's too much delusion. Maybe I need to come back and revisit this later when I have my more wits about me. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. It's an important question. Yeah, please. You touched upon that in my answer, but how does equanimity play into kind of what you're discussing about, especially the office, not indifference, but yeah. in the enlightenment sort of sense of the word? Yeah. Yeah, equanimity is a really tough one because there's something kind of like there's situational equanimity. So the kind of equanimity we need to bring to one experience might be a very different kind of equanimity that we need to bring to another experience. But part of what allows it there to be compassion, so so, so compassion is part of equanimity in certain situations. So in, in the situation Molly is talking about, compassion would be an appropriate quality to kind of support that equanimity. And a lot of times what we have to do uh, like in Dan Siegel's work around mindset, he talks about the, the kind of stages of compassion. And a lot of times the first one is perspective taking. Mm -hmm. So, or, or what we call cognitive reappraising, where we're looking at a situation that looks totally fucked, right? And they're, I'm right, they're wrong, that needs to stop, and we need to make that shit stop. And it's like, well, that's probably not going to work. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> Can I take a different perspective? You know, can, how many how many times do I have to look at this situation before I can come with a perspective where I can I can hold it with some degree of balance, or I can see the bigger picture, or I can see maybe there's some opportunity, maybe there's actually a positive outlook to be 
to be seen here. I maybe don't know what it is. And so it's again, it's that repeatedly looking at, to repeatedly look at the situation rather than just find it disgusting, but I don't want nothing to do with that. Well, you, racism, the people just need to stop being racist. It's like, well, that's not going to work. So there's a way in which we can kind of try to stay engaged in it, but we also need to know when to bear down and back off. When we do start to feel overwhelmed, we do have to remove ourselves from that situation sometimes. But part of it is, can I go back and, and kind of revisit and work with that? Uh, and that becomes skillful means. Uh, could I say equanimity is having the space to hold those emotions that we're feeling? Exactly. And not turning away or running towards it. You know. To just be with. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And not that easy to do, but totally doable. You know, it's that. It's a, yeah, it, it's the capacity to be in the space of that without needing to get rid of, to control, to fix, but to just exactly like you said. And do you think over time that capacity can become quite large? Sure, it can become cult. You you can cultivate yeah. that. You know, that can be cultivated, and that's a very encouraging idea. It is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Carol. So I really appreciate the, your words on emotions, and I can really relate to that suffering, that form of suffering. And I notice it when it comes up. And my first, um, what I'm working with is to not say what I want to say at that time like when I'm irritated or, yeah and when I don't say whatever might come out I feel so much better I and, bet you do and it doesn't just perpetuate this suffering for me for whoever I'm with and so and that kind of motivates more work on in that area yeah that's also very encouraging because yeah. Um, we can see that, you know, we have these constructive, so that's a constructive outcome. But in the heat of the moment, the trick, the thing that's so hard is this delay, the delaying of the gratification because, you know, in that, the thing about sila that makes it so hard is a lot of times we have to sacrifice our own peace of mind in the name of sila in that moment. Because saying the crappy little statement is going to provide some relief in that moment that you really, you need that relief. So by practicing sila, you've chosen to actually you 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 you're sacrificing to degree a degree of a peace of mind for the sake of a greater cause. Mm -hmm. And then of course five ten minutes later you're like totally worth it. Yeah. But in the heat of the moment, it's it, you know when it's like do I want to choose sila? Do I want to just be a peace of mind? And a lot of times that's the thing about sila is it's hard it's hard work, and a lot of times we have to choose to to sacrifice a kind of peace of mind or a, a, a relief that we want to get. We say, you know, I'm not taking the relief of creating this harm right now. I'm going to take responsibility for my internal experience and cool that down. So again, there's awareness. So now you're talking about awareness and choice. I'm aware and I'm choosing. It's very unpleasant. But I'm actually choosing to be uncomfortable internally right now because I don't want to create this harm. And there's something satisfying about just me understanding what's going on mm. in this moment. Mm. Um, and somebody once told me <clears throat> about a <clears throat> phrase or a mantra that you can use that I have nothing to defend. Yeah, right. And that's... Yeah, that's very helpful in the anger emotion. Yeah. 
And also, when you spoke about um, enlightenment, not meaning that you will never suffer from these things again, it means seeing them when they arise yeah. and then not reacting to them. Yeah, that, that's the danger. Of, I, I almost never use this word enlightenment. I feel awakening is really what the word is, is to be awake and to be awake to our emotions, not to be asleep to them. Thank you. Did you see a hand right here? Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe a little clarity on the, um, the anger emotion. Um, something I've been you know, back and forth in my head too, and kind of sparked me to think about it. But you know, um, how to, you know, the sense I got, the sense I'm getting. Maybe I'm wrong. That um, you know. We feel that anger, um, not to necessarily react to it, but it seems to me that there's times when the expressing anger is is the best, you know, option. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when you know if there's like injustice happening and no one expresses anger, then injustice can continue. Like. That's right. For instance, a lot of our young people in this last week <clears throat> have been expressing anger about that the adults aren't doing anything about that's climate right. change, for instance. Yeah, that's constructive anger. That's anger used constructively, which it, which we, we could say in, 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 in a colloquial sense that constructive anger is an act of compassion. It's like, I'm angry because I care, and I'm... I'm pointing out something that's that's. I'm actually putting voice to it, uh, and so uh, there's a way. Anger, anger can be. It can be. It's. It can be constructive, and so being able to learn. Uh, and you, the example you're giving is really one of the best ones. It's like, yeah, well, yeah. There's a lot of things to be angry about, and anger is going to happen. But can I use it? The goal of anger. The reason we have anger is to overcome or remove an obstacle. And so, if we want, if we have obstacles we want to overcome or remove, we need to use the anger emotion to do that. But we need to try to use it in a way that's constructive, that will actually work, that will actually get us to the right outcome that we want to get to. That's not going to further the divisiveness or the anger on the other person, or or being backed by contempt, the type of moral superiority which a lot of times it comes in these situations. Those people, <laughs> that contempt. A uh, moral superiority, which a lot of us can get into, is not helpful. It's not constructive. So you know, it becomes more nuanced in that way. And I think it's encouraging to say, okay, yeah, anger has a, a very appropriate role in the world, but it needs to be used, uh, as we would say in Dharma practice, skillfully. And I think the example you gave is a really great example of skillful or constructive anger, because it's bringing attention. Yeah, take one more, please, Mary. So, so what about, um, like, when you're really angry and you, like, beat up pillows or tear paper or, you know, write, you know, angrily and things like that, yeah. is, is that expression um, viewed as unnecessary? Yeah. It can go either way with that. Um, you know, it can be constructive, it can be destructive. Um, it's also not exactly capital punishment. You know, so I wouldn't give ourselves too hard of a time if you get angry and whack a few pillows. You're not gonna, you know, I wouldn't, you know, you're not. It's not capital crime, but you know, part of it is, is, is it, it might be for some people, it might be a constructive release, or it might actually fuel a sense of violence. 
So like for the angry person, for some people, the angry person to go out into the garage and hit the bag could be constructive, and for somebody else, it could be destructive. So there is a subjective element to it. So we have to sort of gauge that for ourselves. That uh, and, and, and things that do allow the anger to move through a lot of times can be constructive rather than, than holding it in. So we're just about out of time. I want to respect the time. I know that it's Sunday evening and we've been here for a while. So so thank you for your time and your attention. I hope uh, this is helpful and not confusing. Uh, that is my intention. Uh, and also just some of you who I know that many of you come here all the time, but to just say a few words about Donna, uh, that the, the my I, part of my teaching and really 70% of, of my income and the work that I do, I do teach for Donna. I just taught a retreat for Donna. Um, it's part of my livelihood, um, and so there's, there's a couple of different baskets over there. Uh, there's a teacher basket, your uh, opportunity to offer Donna generosity. Uh, you can, uh, I guess you can use cash or check. My name is Dave Smith, pretty easy. Uh, cash or check, I don't know if they do cards here. They do do cards here. And who could you talk to about that, Carol? Yeah, okay. and checks are to be made out to ISC, but um, David will get uh, 100% of what's left in the teacher basket. So just as part of our practice uh, generosity, you can also make a d donation or offer uh, Donna to the uh, center. Uh, and it's really one thing I always like to say is you're very, very lucky and fortunate to have such a wonderful center with really wonderful facilitators. And uh, I know a lot of places in the country I go to would really sell their soul to the devil for a <laughs> Dharma center. And I know that when we have one access to it, there can be a, a way of taking it for granted. So so very lucky and fortunate and a beautiful blessing to have access to, to the teachings. And you guys have really great teachers that teach here and been here for very long. I think you just celebrated 30 years. Mm -hmm. Rock and roll. Good job, Santa Cruz. And um, I'm also, if you want to find more about me, where I am, what I'm doing, I'm at davesmithdharma.com. I also have a podcast on Spotify and iTunes of the same name. So I recorded tonight. I, most of my talks that I give are freely offered on the Internet. You can stream those on your d digital devices. Uh, and also my schedule is uh, posted on my site. Uh, and I think I'm, I'm working on a retreat. I may be back in Santa Cruz the next fall at the Land of Medicine Buddha. Uh, and so I also have a retreat coming up in Southern California at Big Bear Retreat Center, which is a New Year's retreat where I teach every year with my friend Cheryl Sleen. It's at this beautiful new retreat center called Big Bear that just opened. Uh, it's actually quite affordable, and we do a, 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 a four-night retreat over New Year's, and we sit into New Year's, and we do intention setting. We do this big, awesome, cheesy, burn-your-resentment uh, intention-setting ceremony. So if you if you want to get away for New Year's, if you have some time, you can check that out. and. Uh, so thank you very much. And uh, to, to just close, you can join me if you like part of my practice of uh, dedication of merit. And so just taking a few deep breaths and just feeling into your own mind and heart and to reflect inward. And as you reflect inward to bring to mind any goodness that has come to you as a result of our time together this evening. May any goodness, any wisdom or compassion that has resulted from our time together, we offer that to the liberation of all living beings. So feeling inward and outward in all directions, wishing and gladness and safety, may all people, may all living beings everywhere, including ourselves, 
be free and liberated from suffering in this world. Well, I'm going to sleep and go to the airport and go home and see my family who I miss painfully. So thank you very much for coming. And th thanks for coming out. I know it's Sunday and it's always nice to teach with folks. So thank you, everybody. Thank you.